Good morning. Christ is risen. Great. Our reading this morning is from Mark chapter 16, verses 1 to 8, and you may follow along in your bulletin. It's on page 6. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the woman went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Buenos días. La lectura de hoy viene de Marcos, capítulo 16, versículo 1 al 8. Cuando pasó el sábado, María Magdalena, María la madre de Jacobo y Salomé compraron especies aromáticas para ir a ungir el cuerpo de Jesús. Muy de mañana, el primer día de la semana, apenas salió el sol, se dirigieron al sepulcro. Iban, iban diciéndose unas a otras, ¿Quién nos quitará la piedra de la entrada del sepulcro? Pues la piedra era muy grande. Pero, al fijarse bien, se dieron cuenta que estaba corrida. Al entrar en el sepulcro, vieron a un joven vestido con un manto blanco, sentado a la derecha, y se asustaron. No se asusten, les dijo. Ustedes buscan a Jesús el Nazareno, el que fue crucificado, ha resucitado, no está aquí. Miren el lugar donde lo pusieron, pero vayan a decirles a los discípulos y a Pedro, Él va delante de ustedes a Galilea, allí lo verán tal como les dijo. Temblorosas y desconcentradas, las mujeres salieron huyendo del sepulcro. No dijeron nada a nadie porque tenían miedo. I see a lot of burnt foreheads like my own, and so I want to take a moment to thank everyone who helped to make our neighborhood Easter party yesterday a great success, a joy. Yeah, so many people across the church who helped out, um, over 50 volunteers in different capacities helping out. Um, and especially uh, Vula, our staff member, who uh, helped lead the effort. It was a big ordeal, folks. I don't know if you realize. We cooked up and gave away 500 hot dogs. That's a lot of hot dogs. We also uh, stuffed and gave away 1,500 eggs in a, a series of savage egg hunts. Uh, it, it was a serious ordeal, but thank you uh, so much uh, for enabling us to be a church that is just wanting to be a blessing to our neighbors. 
um, to give the gift of hope and community and fun um, without seeking anything in return. Um, and we're grateful uh, for that. And if you happen to be someone that is joining us today because you met us, met someone in our community at the Easter party yesterday, we want to welcome you especially. But let's pause and pray together as we begin. Jesus, we already are encouraged by the reality of your resurrection, the way in which you are continuing to give life. And we pray that you would come and use your words, your life-giving words, to pierce our hearts, to change us. We pray that you would come and and give us exactly what we need. Only you know that. Uh, With every person here, we represent such a wide range of stories, of needs, of challenges. One thing is true, all of us in some way or another need the hope of the resurrection. So come speak that hope into our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that, what we just read, was a weird ending. Some might even call it a bad ending to an otherwise wonderful story. With 11,000 words, Mark narrates what he calls the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And all throughout the book, he explains that at first, people aren't entirely clear who Jesus is, but they see him perform miracles with deep love for the vulnerable. He reaches out. He heals the sick. They hear him teach about the forgiveness of sins, about the need to give up everything to follow him about the long-awaited arrival of the kingdom of God. Jesus had come to rescue our world from the ravages of sin and of death. But he also explained that he would do this in the most unexpected way, by dying. The religious leaders became jealous of all the crowds that came to follow Jesus. They felt threatened by his teaching, by his popularity. And so they began to conspire to kill him. And finally, they're successful. Jesus is falsely charged with leading a rebellion against the state. And he's executed by crucifixion on a Roman cross, which was one of the cruelest, most painful forms of torture in history. And yet the most painful part of Jesus's suffering, in fact, wasn't the shredding of his back by the flogging, nor was it the nails driven through his hands and his feet, nor was it even the the, the suffocation of his lungs as he hung there for hours on the cross. But the most painful part of his suffering was the part you couldn't see. And that was the judgment of God being poured into his soul as he hung there on the cross. The judgment of God, not for rebellion against the state, but rebellion 
against God. Not for his rebellion, but ours. See, that's how he rescues us. That's how he loves us. Jesus took what we deserve. Jesus suffered and died in our place to give us life. That was Friday. Then early Sunday morning, three of his most faithful followers, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, their names are mentioned in verse 1, still grieving, they went to the place where Jesus was buried. But they were shocked to find that that stone door, that heavy stone door to the tomb had been rolled away. Then there was this angel who looked like a young man dressed in a white robe, we're told. And he told them the most amazing, life-changing news that they would ever hear. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Our sins have been paid for. Death has been defeated. Jesus is alive. And it's at this point that you almost want to see the confetti start to fall. It's at this point that you want the movie soundtrack to start to swell and to hear the happy music begin to play. You want to see the women turn to each other in great delight and to hug each other in excitement probably at this point in slow-mo. <laughs> you want to witness them eager to spread the good news, perhaps taking selfies of themselves by the empty tomb and posting it on Instagram to get the word out. You're finishing up this story called The Good News About Jesus, and so you want to make sure that everyone's looking good, and everyone's feeling good, happily ever after, right? But that's not how things went down. And that's not how this story finishes, is it? Instead, we're told that these very first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection responded with confusion and with fear. Verse 5 tells us they were alarmed. In other words, thrown into a state of terror. In verse 8, we're told, trembling and bewildered, the woman went out and fled from the tomb. They just jet, they ran away. And how does the entire gospel, good news according to Mark, end with these words? They were afraid. The end. What a finish! Terrible, right? It's not how you sell a story. We want a Hollywood ending. But that's not the ending we got in the book of Mark. 
Seems like a terrible way to end the story, isn't it? Or is it? See, when Jesus rose from the dead, his faithful followers initially responded with bewilderment and fear. The first thing that this teaches us is that, you know, friends, it's okay to struggle to embrace the resurrection of Jesus. That might be who you are today. A little skeptical. You've heard the stories. You're a person of reason after all. You know these things don't happen. Maybe you're even skeptical of those personally who subscribe to these claims. Here the Bible is pouring out favor and grace and giving us space to explore and to understand what it means that Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, it's astonishing. Don't you see that the Bible itself records for all of history people that aren't getting it right away? It normalizes process. It normalizes a journey. It normalizes grace. See, because we're not saved and brought into the favor of God and even into an understanding of God just by figuring it out on the spot. We're not made right with God because of our intelligence or because of the strength of our reason or because of our ability to convince ourselves that hard-to-believe things are in fact true. There's a lot of sympathy for those who doubt Even this angel here announces he's risen, he's not here. And then he says, what? Just believe. No. He says, see. See the place. Use your senses. See the place. Take a look where they laid him. He's not here. An invitation to consider the evidence, to ponder it, to sit on it, as it were. And even when Jesus himself began to appear to his disciples, he too, so gracious, so kind. They say, I'm not so sure I believe. He says, then touch me. Find out I'm really alive. He doesn't scoff or scorn or condemn them as we might expect him to. He says, no, let me eat some fish with you so that you can see that it's really true. Person that is maybe with us today that feels like, gosh, this is tough. I'm here because a friend brought me here, or maybe I'm here because I'm curious but not yet convinced. Maybe you need to know that uh, God passionately wants you to know the truth about Jesus, but he's also willing to walk with you, and he's given you a community who's also willing to walk with you. This is important for some people, I think. I think some of us are wired to sort of resist the minute we feel pressure. Some of you aren't so sure you want to be associated with other people that call themselves Christians. Maybe you've become jaded about Christians, especially perhaps in recent years. Or maybe you feel like you're supposed to know everything because you've always lived your life smart all the time. And so if there's anything that's hard to get your mind around, then maybe there's just no way that could be true. Uh, Maybe you're someone that needs to 
sort of gently hear God prod you with something that your mind alone might not be able to get around? What is it for you? Come along on this journey. This weird ending to the Gospel of Mark invites you to a journey. But there's a second thing that the women's response tells us, and it's that they understood that something really big just happened. And maybe that's obvious. We're talking about the resurrection of Jesus, but I think it's worth pondering for a second. Mary Magdalene, Mary, and Salome, they sensed something about the resurrection of Jesus that we often miss. It's amazing how much Christians can talk about Jesus rising from the dead and just sort of say that as if it happens every day or as if it's an obvious fact or if it stands to reason that that's something that everyone should get on board with. The word here that's translated bewildered in verse 8 can also be rendered something like thrown out of your mind. In other words, their minds were blown. Their categories were blown. They knew that they had encountered something that could not be and yet was. They knew that they stood before the impossibilities that God alone could make possible. And so they trembled. And so they feared. As one commentator puts it, with his closing comment, Mark wished to say that the gospel of Jesus Christ is an event beyond human comprehension and therefore awesome and frightening. You see, the, the three early witnesses here in this passage, they understood something that we so easily miss. And it's that the resurrection of Jesus is not only good news, it's big news. And when they saw that Jesus was raised from the dead, they were bewildered by a big Jesus. They were bewildered by his big love. They were bewildered by his big story that he had just pulled them into. What does that mean? They were bewildered by a big, big Jesus. You have to remember just three days before Jesus was executed, was killed. All hope seemed like it was lost. Jesus had claimed to be the promised Messiah. He claimed to be the very son of God. And yet he died being publicly accused of being a liar. He was executed as an imposter. And so if Jesus rose from the dead, guess what that meant? Every claim he made must be true. You see, one of the great truths about the resurrection, heralded by the resurrection, is that Jesus really is who he said he is. God himself bearing all authority and all power. In Matthew's account of his resurrection, Jesus announces to his, his disciples, all authority on heaven and on earth have been given to me. 
Jesus is the all-powerful one. Jesus is the one that can actually save us from our sins. Jesus is the one that can change everything. In fact, he defeated death itself. Death could no longer hold him in the ground. And if that's true, then this big Jesus can do anything at all in your life and mine. The resurrection guarantees that nothing is impossible for him. Not just back then, but even today. You see, because we're told in places like Romans chapter 8, verse 11, that if you're one with Christ today, then you have the very same spirit of Jesus. The very same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Listen. Romans 8.11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Jesus can do anything In your life, Easter teaches us that God can renew your hope even in the darkest and the most dire situations. Jesus has the power even today to resurrect, to bring to life whatever deadness you can identify in your life. Jesus has the power to resurrect your marriage, don't you know? Maybe on most days you feel it's not just on life support. It's dead. It's gone. Jesus can raise that. Raise you from the dead. Or maybe it's a part of your heart, your life, where where you know you ought to be more loving, but it's just this, this stranglehold that sin and selfishness seems to have. In polite company, you might call it, you know, vices, but you really know it's just the crap in your soul that's killing people around you. And you don't know how to change. You feel dead as far as power to change yourself is concerned. That temper, that way of gobbling up people in the way you handle relationships, the way in which you are just drawn to material things, the way you just seem to live for yourself and forget other people, that addiction that you have, whatever it might be, that deadness of power to change yourself. Oh, dear friends, Jesus has the power to give life to that deadness too. Jesus has the power to raise anything from the dead Dead relationships, dead job prospects, dead housing situations, dead, dead, dead. Jesus is alive, alive, alive. And thank God that we're not in charge of saving ourselves. That's why on a day like Easter, it's good for us to pick up our heads and look up. We got a big Jesus. A big Jesus who bewilders us with the massive power that he makes available to us. 
to those who believe. Secondly, the early witnesses were bewildered by his big love. What's interesting is that some scholars say that one of the reasons why these women might have responded initially with fear and why they were terrified was because of the news of Jesus' resurrection, the dead coming up from the ground, as it were, made them think perhaps that it was the end of the world. And so they were perhaps sure that judgment was upon them. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I wonder if all of us have a, a similar initial impulse towards God, where you fear the judgment of God or the frown of God and what they forget and what, what we also often forget is that Jesus in his death, he actually suffered their future day of judgment on the cross. There was no more judgment to be suffered. Jesus actually was in his resurrection unveiling and announcing a, a big, big love that they could barely even get their minds around, that we can barely get our minds around. Could it be that God could really love a sinner like me? Could it be that God could really be kind to a selfish person like me? Could, could it really be that God could show favor to people like ourselves? The answer is yes, by the cross and by the resurrection. You might have noticed in verse 7 that the angel, when speaking to the women to go tell the disciples about his being raised to life, he named someone specifically, and who was it? Verse 7, but go, he says, and tell his disciples and Peter. Peter, of course, was the proud and brazen disciple, a leader among equals in many respects, and one of Jesus' best friends. Just three days before, just hours before Jesus was executed, Peter had confidently told Jesus that he would never stray away. Even if the others fall away, I won't. He, he would be the one to stand firm. He would stand by Jesus' side and even die with him if he needed to. And yet a couple hours later, there he was lying to the crowds, telling them that not only that he wasn't a disciple, that he didn't even know Jesus, has never even seen him, whatever it took to save his own skin. If ever there was someone that needed to know the big love of Jesus, it was Peter. Jesus, now risen from the dead, is eager to tell Peter, your sins are forgiven. I love you. Come near to me as I come near to you. You see, what the resurrection of Jesus announces is that Jesus not only is who he says he is, but Jesus actually did what he said he would do. He would completely pay for all of our sins. That true forgiveness, lasting forgiveness, forever forgiveness is possible. All of your sins, past, present, and future, gone as far as the heavenly records are concerned. So there's no more atonement that you need to make for yourself. 
There's no more doing good deeds to try to correct the record or no more groveling before God or groveling before other people to try to cleanse your own soul. You can come before God and know that you have been washed clean. You can come before God because Jesus paid it all. You can come before God because the resurrection proves that Jesus didn't lie. He really would become a ransom for sinners, setting us free, paying for our sins, giving us life, bringing us into the company of the Heavenly Father, reconciling us to God. This is the promise of Jesus. And some of us need to hear this today because we're crushed by some mistake or series of mistakes that we've made. And we're giving in to that crushing. Whether if it's the the guilt or the the shame, something that you've done that maybe it comes to mind and you just quickly push it out of your head because you can't bear what it feels like to own up to that wrong. Maybe this is an invitation for you actually to come to the resurrected Jesus, the big love of Jesus, and to find freedom from that guilt and that shame, to find cleansing. Because don't you see what Peter's story is all about is this. Peter proves that failure is not a life sentence in Jesus. That he gives us new beginnings. Jesus gives us his big love. They were bewildered by big Jesus. They were bewildered by his big love. And lastly, they were bewildered by his big, big story. One thing that's so important to understand is that Jesus' resurrection was not just this tricky, fascinating thing that happened to one individual, Jesus of Nazareth. But rather, 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul writing there says that Paul, uh, sorry, that Jesus' resurrection was actually just the first of what would be many resurrections. That actually what is now being unveiled is a wider and bigger and longer story of how God is going to renew and remake the world. Getting rid of all sin and all darkness. Getting rid of all disease and all decay. That Jesus is bringing through his resurrection the beginnings of the healing of the entire world. As Tom Wright, scholar, wrote about the resurrection of Christ, he explains this. That it is the story of God's kingdom being launched on earth as in heaven, generating a new state of affairs in which the power of evil has been decisively defeated, the new creation has been decisively launched, and Jesus' followers have been commissioned and equipped to put that victory in that inaugurated new world into practice. You see, the resurrection of Jesus is the story of God's new world, his renovated world, his healed world, his perfected world, that new world finally breaking in into history. And he's inviting you to live into a world in which one day will be brought to consummation when Jesus returns. 
It's a story of true and lasting justice, a story of true and lasting beauty, of true and lasting relationship, of true and lasting intimacy with God himself. You see, what Jesus is bringing us into is not just a little bit of spiritual magic. He's bringing us into a story that's bigger than you can imagine. And you know why I think this is so important for us to understand? It's because most of us live desperately every day trying to write in our lives little stories that are trying to make us feel like somebody's. With our work, with our relationships, with our gifts, with our talents. We're trying to make sure that we live in such a way that makes us feel like we are someone or we're part of something. Dear beloved people, the story of the resurrection is an invitation to the greatest and grandest story that you could imagine. The way in which we find deep meaning, true and lasting meaning in life is by being included into God's story. Rather than trying to narrate and craft and construct a story of your own. God says, come on in. I have not abandoned this world. I have not abandoned you. Death will not last forever. Neither will decay. The terrors of sin will not last forever. I am renovating this world. As one theologian has put it, resurrection means that the worst thing is never the last thing. And that's the story that Jesus is pulling you into, and that changes everything. Don't you want to be a part of a bigger story? I think we're all hungry for that in our hearts. And I think we're all tired of trying to make our little stories into stories that are bigger than they really are. And so this is therefore a call to freedom. And finding ourselves lost in the big, 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 big resurrected Jesus. Even bewildered, with minds blown, bewildered by the bigness of this Christ who can change anything. Who can raise to life any kind of deadness. This Jesus whose big love can reach even to the depths of our failures and our sins. And give you a new chance and to give you his love. And a big Jesus that draws you into his big story so that we can find meaning and hope and purpose in a future because death is now dead. And because there's hope as we extend into God's future that has now broken into our present. That we can say and live with confidence and freedom and joy. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. Let's hang on to that big hope. Let's pray. And so we ask that you would, Jesus, open wide our minds and our hearts to just the magnitude of your resurrection in a way that even maybe makes us tremble a little bit, bewilders us a little bit. Help us not to put you in a little box or to even narrow the resurrection down, whittle it down to to just a, a fine point of doctrine but rather to unleash it in our lives as the life-giving power that it really is. Christ is risen. Help us to live like this is true. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand together and let's sing in Christ alone.